and I will go away. You will look for me. But you will die in your sins. You cannot go where I am going. He says that we cannot go where he is going. Does this mean that he will kill himself? You belong to this world here below, but I come from above. You are from this world, but I am not from this world. That is why I told you that you will die in your sins. And you will die in your sins if you do not believe that I am who I am. Who are you? What I have told you from the very beginning. I have much to say about you, much to condemn you for. The one who sent me, however, is truthful. And I tell the world only what I have heard from him. They did not understand that Jesus was talking to them about the Father. When you lift up the Son of Man, you will know that I am who I am. Then you will know that I do nothing on my own authority. But I say only what the Father has instructed me to say. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. Because I always do what pleases him. Many who heard Jesus say these things believed in him. If you obey my teaching, you are really my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We are the descendants of Abraham, and we have never been anybody's slaves. What do you mean, then, by saying you will be free? I am telling you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave of sin. A slave does not belong to a family permanently, but a son belongs there forever. If the sun sets you free, then you will be really free. Church, how are you doing this morning? Great to see you. Uh, you may or may not be aware, but on Monday nights here, our fellowship hall hosts uh, AA meetings each Monday. And AA has celebrated just recently 85 years of helping alcoholics and other addicts on the path to recovery. Praise God for them and that. Uh, from what I understand, from people who, who've attended these meetings and this sort of thing, is that most newcomers to an AA meeting uh, feel initially uncomfortable, <laughs> as you might imagine, going for the first time. Their, their, their posture as they sit there is one of uh, defensiveness and uh, maybe a little hard-heartedness and just resistance. And one of the features that helps in every AA meeting draw a person out is an element in that meeting of hearing another addict share his or her story. Uh, it's a phenomenon known as witness authority. Witness authority because the newcomer feels like uh, someone else has witnessed their life. Someone has witnessed their story like someone has read their mail, if you've heard that phrase before. I was listening to the addiction story of a, of a woman named Leslie Johnson. She spent her whole life uh, writing novels. She's a novelist. And so she spent her whole life creating original stories, original characters with original identities and that sort of thing. And the whole point of being a novelist is, you know, to be novel, right? To write something very new, very creative. When in her addiction she had turned to AA, she was surprised to notice that the most powerful stories were not the original ones, were not the novel ones, they were the redundant ones. 
They were the repeated ones. She noted, quote, our stories were valuable because of their redundancy, not despite it. She said, your story is useful because other people have lived it again and again and again. And by hearing the story that is a witness to your life, like someone has read your mail, you actually discover something about yourself, about who you really are in a way that you could not discover on your own, right? When you hear your story and somebody else's story, you say, aha, now I see who I really am. You finally feel known by finding your story in another's, and you don't need to attend an AA meeting to experience this. I know that each of you here have at least once in your life experienced that rare experience of listening to someone right? In a conversation, and you think, oh my gosh, that's me. That is my story. A number of years ago, I remember listening to someone describing being what's known as like a social introvert. And he was sharing how introverts and extroverts both like get frustrated with him. He said, introverts get frustrated with me because I uh, ask them lots of questions and extroverts get upset with me because I don't spend enough time with them. Introverts don't understand when I want to go to a party. Extroverts don't understand when I want to leave that party early. <laughs> and I thought, yes, I get it. That is me on my own. I couldn't see this about myself. But when I heard it in another person's story, I thought, boom, yeah, now I understand myself a little better. We're never quite as authentic, friends, and self-formed as we like to believe we are. And that's because I believe we are designed to be defined relationally, not on our own. And I know we live in an age of authenticity where each person needs to be a new identity, needs to be a new self, right? But we're actually defined relationally. Now, as it turns out, the same gentleman who I was listening to was a, was a pastor and being much older and wiser than me. As I got to know him and he heard me preach a few times, he took me aside one day and said, hey, I got a couple tips for you. It's like, okay, love to hear. He's like, one of the things you need to work on is landing in your sermon more, making your main point more clear. And after a while, that point hit home with me and I tried to do that. And that's why you get the sermon in the nutshells that you, you enjoy so much today is because I wanted to make things super crystal clear. But in the moment when he told me that, he took me aside, he said this very hard thing to me, hey, you need to do a better job of landing in your sermons, making your point clear. I was like, I'm not sure I see myself in your story anymore. I don't want to be a part of that. It hurt my feelings, right? Jesus is initially attractive to so many people because we see ourselves in his story. We see ourselves in his story, right? He was born to a people who suffered. The Jews who throughout their history have been targeted for, for, for being systematically exterminated. The circumstances of Jesus' birth were questioned. His parents early on fled from the law. He was misunderstood by everyone, mocked by his enemies, betrayed by his friends, persecuted, beaten, humiliated. So that everyone who's experienced pain in their lives can see their story in the story of Jesus, right? And that's what makes him so attractive. And yet here in our passage, and what we just saw up here on the screen, Jesus is something different. Something that's even hard for us to see ourselves in. 
something that might make us want to step away from his story, step away from him, but something through which he wishes to elevate us into a higher and grander story if we would but listen to him. And here's something hard. And here's what we should listen to this morning. Here's our message in a nutshell. If you remember nothing else, remember this. Jesus wants to elevate us into a higher story through his full identity. Jesus wants to elevate us into a higher, a grander, a better story through his full identity. We've lately been spending Sundays listening to the big questions of life and thinking through them. The big questions of life life asked of Jesus and by Jesus. And today's question we hear is, who are you? Who are you, Jesus? And he summarizes his response in verse 28 when he says, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. We're going to unpack this key phrase in a moment because it kind of unlocks everything for us this morning. But before we do, I don't want us to miss what Jesus is doing through the revelation of his full identity, which is to elevate us, to elevate us with him into a higher story. We love the earthly Jesus. He wants to elevate us into something higher. That's why he says in verse 23, you are from below, I am from above. He wants to lift us up into something better than what we experience here We easily identify with the humanity of Jesus. He wants to elevate us into something greater, to fellowship with God the Son, God the Spirit, and God the Father. Elevating us is why he refers to his Father so often in this passage, right? He says, verse 20, I do nothing on my own authority, but I speak as the Father has taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. I always do what is pleasing to him. He keeps referring back to the Father because Jesus wants to make clear my mission is not a solo mission. I too am defined by another story, my father's. I have seen who I am in another, and it has defined me too. And the beauty of Jesus seeing himself in his father's story and inviting us to be elevated into it also is what prompts many people to trust in him at this point, right? Verse 30, after he was saying these things, as he was saying these things, many trusted in him. So before we unpack who Jesus is as the Son of Man, I don't want us to miss what some who heard him found so very beautiful. And that is, he wants to elevate us into a higher story through his full identity. That is what Jesus wants to do for you and for me this morning. I want you to hear that first and foremost. Let's hear what that identity is. Let's unpack that a little bit. It comes in this key phrase, verse 28, lifted up the Son of Man. So when church folk talk about Jesus, they use phrases like uh, Savior, Savior, uh, Rescuer, Redeemer. When the people who walked with Jesus refer to Jesus, they use words like Son of God, Christ, Lord. But he never used these terms of himself. He didn't refer to himself in this way, by far the most used title, the most referred to title Jesus used for himself is the Son of Man. He almost always calls himself this, which is super interesting. What does that even mean? We hear it over and over again. Is that just saying he's a human being? Actually, it doesn't. So let's talk about it. This is the part where you got to put, how does this relate to me, Ryan? 
aside for just a minute, all right? Screw in your blinders, put on your brain bucket for a minute, all right? And just hang with me for a couple minutes because we're going to get through this together, all right? The Son of Man is a reference to a couple verses from the Old Testament prophet Daniel, all right? So these words that Daniel is going to write down uh, occurred 600 years before Jesus was speaking here. 600 years before Jesus was speaking, God gives this prophet Daniel a vision about the end of the world as we know it. And here is that vision. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 through 14. It'll be up here on the screen. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him. So here he comes in the clouds, son of man, coming like an avenger, right? Coming through the clouds, presented before him was a kingdom. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So what we see here is that Jesus is more than a humble, suffering servant in whose story we can easily identify and see ourselves. Again, that is the part of Jesus' story that so many of us are attracted to initially. But by using this title for himself, Son of Man, Jesus is saying, oh, I am much more. I am the one coming in the clouds. I'm the one who's the king of kings, people serving an everlasting dominion. I am much more. And actually... Through me, you can be much more too. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know I am He. So we know that Jesus is much more. When, I have lifted up, when you've lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know I am He. This phrase, lifted up, this word lifted up, every commentator agrees it has a double meaning. Lifted up refers to when people lift up Jesus on the cross when He is killed on our behalf and when He's being lifted up to heaven. Right? The victorious, risen, King of kings, Jesus. It means both. Then you will know that I am He. It's a clear reference, Jesus is saying, to divinity here. I am, Jesus is saying, I am the I am. Yahweh, which means I am who I am. In fact, when Jesus repeats this phrase again later in John chapter 8, the religious leaders pick up stones and try to kill Him for blasphemy. Because he's saying, I am the eternally existent God. So just to summarize everything I've just said, Jesus is more than a suffering servant. He's a victorious king. But the way of Jesus, the way to victory is through voluntary suffering through the cross. Victorious king, the way to victory is through the cross, through, through voluntary suffering. One New Testament theologian, a great one named Gordon Ladd, said the Jewish people, they had these two concepts in mind, the Barnasha, the Son of Man, this Messiah of glory, and the servant of Yahweh, the Ebed Yahweh, Yahavah, which means the suffering servant. Never in their wildest dreams did they imagine the two figures who could be one person. And yet Jesus is saying, I am both. I am the King of glory. I am the suffering servant. In one person, I am He. Victorious king, and yet the way, the way of my victory is through voluntary suffering. So I'm going to briefly synthesize this idea of who Jesus is with the rest of our passage 
to see who he is in relationship to us, okay? We're going to see that he is the truth about myself. Jesus is my liberator. Jesus is my victor. So first, Jesus is the truth about myself. He is the truth of who I really am. Jesus, in fact, coming here to this earth says something about me. It says that I'm in need of a rescuer. I'm in need of a savior. One of Jesus' most famous phrases is here in John chapter 8. You heard it this morning, right? The truth shall set you free. We've heard so many people use this phrase. So many people in different kinds of bondage. Ironically, this week I heard someone use this phrase in reference to telling the world with courage who they really are. Right? The truth has set me free. I'm going to share with the world who I am. As Jesus explains in the verses that follow, the truth that will set us free is... Drum roll? Anyone? It is... I am a slave to sin. <laughs> Noticing that I'm a slave to sin. So, yes, tell the world with courage. World, I'm coming out. I'm a slave to sin, baby. All right? That, and actually, that's what we need to do, is say it out loud. More on that in a little bit. But first, we've got to explore this idea. Because it's a pretty big deal, being a slave to sin. What in the world is sin? Sin is the big no in your heart. The big no that begins in every human heart and shows itself through our thoughts, our words, and our actions. That no just shows up. If you've ever had or been around a small child, you've witnessed the big no. That really isn't something that they're taught. It's something with which we're born. Every parent doesn't have to model or teach their child no, but for some reason they sit there and they fling baby food from their high chair, back in our face anyway, as they defiantly scream, no. Where does that come from? <laughs> How does that happen? Right? Infants are the best evidence for the sinful nature. No to God and yes to me. You don't have to teach it to them. I never even taught my child how to say no. But yet they somehow knew the word. <laughs> how did that happen? Not sure. I think it's the sin nature. And the more I choose that big no in my heart, in my life, the more I choose sin, the more I can't help choosing it. Sin then also is suicide of the will. It's an act of the will against itself. It's like we're continually killing our resistance to sin. That's why Jesus says in verse 34, everyone who sins then becomes a slave to sin. You can't help but do it. So sin is also like those cortisone shots. Anyone ever here get cortisone shots? If you have, you're familiar with it, right? A lot of us have because cortisone is a steroid that strengthens a hurting muscle and temporarily relieves the pain we're experiencing. And if something strengthens, strengthens us and relieves pain, well, I want to want that again, right? The problem is it also deteriorates the cartilage around the joint and diminishes its return each time we get one. Return on relief each time we get one. Diminishes. That's just like sin. Before I trusted my life to Jesus, I tried to find pleasure anywhere I could. All right? Some ways more, quote-unquote, innocent than others. I've Try to find pleasure in alcohol, a little bit in drugs, in relationships, winning at sports, humor. And each time I experienced the pleasure, I didn't get quite 
as much satisfaction as I did the time before, but because I got a little bit still, I kept coming back to it. See what happens there, right? I become a slave to sin. I got a little less than the time before, but I got some, so I keep coming back to it because it's what I know. I'm a slave to sin, but it was too painful for me to admit it, too painful to confess it out loud. Oh man, I really am a slave here. And this is where the way of Jesus comes in. His way, remember, to victory is through voluntary suffering. And so the first act, my first act of voluntary suffering was to admit out loud, to confess, to cry out, I am stuck. And it was hard, but I finally did. I'll tell you a quick story here. Uh, A farmer's uh, sheep and his pig had escaped. Together they found a weak link in the fence. So they started to burrow away their way through it. Seeing their opportunity, they bolted across the field into freedom, right? Or so they thought. And, uh, the, you know, unfamiliar territories that they could explore. The farmer noticed they went missing, goes and searches for them. First day, doesn't find them. Goes to sleep, has a fitful night of sleep, resumes his search the next morning. In the afternoon, the second day, he hears a distant bleeding. It was the sound of his sheep crying out. So he goes and he, he follows the sound and eventually he, he comes upon a nearby bog where he finds his missing sheep and the pig. Both had fallen into the ditch. Now, both had been coated in muck. Both were unable to get out of the ditch. But where the pig had been content to wallow in his own filth, the sheep had known to bleat pathetically until the farmer would come and hear him, right, rescue him, lift him out, and cleanse him. Bleat pathetically. Bleed out loud. Friends, Jesus liberates lost sheep like this one. He told a famous story about it. He went, found the sheep, plucked it, took it on his shoulders, and took it home. And that can be you as well this morning. That can be your story too. Jesus is my liberator. He liberates us from the sin. He rescues us out of the mire, out of our own filth. He liberates us first from the penalty of sin. In verse 21, he says to those who don't yet trust him, he says, hey, you're going to die in your sin. And where I'm going, you can't come with me. It's an overlooked statement we might not see when we read this passage because it it hurts to hear. But the final penalty of sin is permanent death. The death of your ability and opportunity to know and relate to God. God. And yet, Jesus was lifted up on the cross to liberate you from this death sentence. You know, being able to uh, see on our, our TV screens, our computer screens, the verdict of, um, of trials these days, especially murder trials, is, is really puts the real in reality TV, right? It is still surreal to me that we can turn on something and watch people receive a sentence in real time. I remember a few months ago, I watched the verdict of the three men who were accused of uh, killing Ahmaud Arbery in, in the state of Georgia. And I remember tuning in because of the devastating history of racism in this country, and especially in states like Georgia, we genuinely didn't know the out- outcome of this verdict. 
which is sad to say. And even though justice was rightly done, watching these men's faces in the moment as they hear the judge issue essentially their death sentence, it is, it is not something to delight in. It is a terrible thing to watch someone have that feeling of, oh my gosh, what has happened to me? It's horrifying. Imagine a scenario standing for a judge. Someone interrupts his verdict as he's, as he's issuing that death sentence. Someone interrupts his verdict, raises his hand, and volunteers to receive the punishment in your place. Imagine that feeling of awe, of wonder, confusion that turns to incredible gratefulness. And that's what Jesus does through the voluntary suffering on the cross. He frees you from a death sentence. He frees you from an eternity in prison who the sun sets free is free indeed. And friends, I want that to be good news for you this morning. Good news for you to hear. Full stop. I hear this though. Here's the thing. The prison cell, it stays open. It stays open. Jesus liberates us from prison, but the sentence of death, the power of sin, allures us back to the filth. I lived uh, in the Cayman Islands for nine years and while I was pastoring there, uh, pretty much every Sunday I would go to the men's prison. And I would go and visit with some of the guys there. And, and one particular Sunday, my friend Joel, he was going to be released from prison that week. So we were throwing a party for him, a party for his parole. And I asked him privately at one point, sort of as the party was winding down, hey man, how, what are your feelings about getting out? He said, I said, honestly, Ryan, like Pastor Ryan, my, my feelings are kind of mixed. I'm comfortable here. I, um, I kind of I know my schedule. I'm familiar with everyone. I have friends in here. I know my cell. I know where everything goes. And I feel I have a sense of control that I didn't necessarily have out there. And my biggest worry is that I'm going to want to return. I'm going to want to return here. Friends, sin is filth, but it's familiar filth. We know it. We remember the smell. And we liked how it initially gave us pleasure. And I like, too, to return to it sometimes. This past week, uh, after a few long days of work, I returned to, to my prison cell of, of pleasure. I mentioned how I was, I've always been attracted to it. In this case, the, it was kind of a relief, personal relief, through uh, the sport of basketball. Specifically watching it on TV. I like to play it too occasionally, but some people like to beat me up when I play. You know who I'm looking at right now. So uh, I like to watch it as well. And it's the month of March, and it is a wonderful time to watch basketball. If you don't know, March is wonderful. And, and let me just say this right now. Basket, watching basketball is not sin. That is not my point in saying this. But any good thing when you seek it for ultimate pleasure, an ultimate thing can become sin. And especially when you choose it over serving your family. I'm tired, but there's clear help that's needed in my family. And I decided to choose, hey, you know what, though? I kind of deserve this. I'm going to sit down and watch basketball. And each time I did that, I felt terribly. And yet I kept doing it 
on two other consecutive nights, I did it. It's such banal, it's such boring, it's such unexciting sin. (laughs) All right, sitting down, being lazy, and watching basketball. But I did something one time the next morning, like, God, I'm struggling with this. So I just wrote down, I said, Holy Spirit, write down why you like your sin. So of course, I wrote down, I like the initial sensation, right? The, The pleasure sin brings, the relief, the sense of superiority sometimes. I like thinking I know what's best for me. I wrote down. And finally, I wrote down, I like being in control of what I think is best for me. I like having a sense that I'm in charge. Right? It's, it's filth, but familiar filth. It's filth I know. It's filth I choose. I think that's a hard reality that many of us, even in this church, struggle to come to church terms with sometimes. If you've been following Jesus for a while, you stop saying out loud how much you need him to rescue you again. Right? That you no longer feel like you're the pathetic sheep. And so you're just the more sophisticated pig wallowing in better smelling filth. Right? <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm a church person now. My filth doesn't smell as bad, but it's still filth. When in reality, you're still the sheep needing to cry out and surrender. And I say surrender because now the issue is the issue of pride. We don't want to admit, ah, oh God, I am stuck again like I was yesterday, like I was last week, like I was 10 years ago, like I was when I started this journey with you. And it's hard to say out loud. Again, the way of Jesus, voluntary suffering. It's through this continuing crying out to Jesus. Jesus, I need you again. I need you again. Amen. That... Jesus gradually liberates us from the power of sin. He starts to free us, and we see, oh, it is still wonderful to be rescued by you, isn't it? And he starts to liberate us over time, over time from the power of sin, until the day he returns as our victor to remove from us for all time the presence of sin. Jesus is my victor. So we heard... From the prophet Daniel, how the Son of Man will one day return to right all the wrongs in this world and to establish a kingdom. But we didn't hear the full story. Jesus, uh, or sorry, Daniel goes on to say this in Daniel chapter 7, verse 18, from the same passage we read from earlier. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom. The saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Friends, that means followers of Jesus are elevated with Jesus to be princesses and princes. According to Matthew 19, Jesus repeats the same idea. He says, we will be transformed into rulers with him in his kingdom. We'll each get to sit on thrones. That's crazy, right? Us, me, you, thrones. Why thrones? Well, the beginning of this story, we're actually ruling God creates us to rule. He creates us to to work, to create, to build without pain, without frustration, without jealousy, without strife, without want of materials, without threat of cost, without need. As members of the Father's royal family, we get to do these things together and for eternity, and it's wonderful. We get to create and live and worship God and enjoy for eternity. So in the meantime, it's fitting that we revel in this future hope. 
Reveling together, even in the act of a Sunday celebration, is so important. You may not remember even this morning the sermon or the songs you sing, and I'm okay with that. You may wonder if you're not better served even to spend time with the same people, but outside the sermon and not singing. Let me tell you, you're not better off doing that. And the reason why is because the very act of calling to mind who Jesus is, who we are because of him, singing in celebration is an act of revelry. We are doing what Augustine, the great Augustine once said, what's called reordering our loves. You forget, I forget that these lesser pleasures with which we're distracted during the week and can never satisfy us, that they will never satisfy us. They can't ever satisfy us. And so we gather together every Sunday to reorder our loves. You confront the reality of a return to sin. You do the work of voluntary confession and surrender And then you revel in the splendor of being elevated to an even higher story of belonging to the Father and reigning with His Son forever. That's good news. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank You that You tell us who You are. That You say when You have lifted up the Son of Man, lifted You up through seeing You on the cross, but also seeing You in glory then we will know that you are who you say you are. And we are so grateful that you want to take us from that mud, take us from that fill, take us from that mire, and lift us up into that story through simple trust in you. That's all that's required is a simple trust in you. You require no work, nothing else, but just bleeding out like that sheep. God, I'm stuck. And I need you. Help us do that not only today, but for the rest of our lives, knowing that it's through humility that we can find glory. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.